When I was 17, I left home for the first time and moved to California to attend a small Bible college in the mountains of Southern California. And on the way up to the Bible college on this kind of two-lane mountain road, you would pass by a number of warning signs. Sharp turn, falling rocks, steep grade, no shoulder, danger. There's a couple different ways that we could have approached those signs uh, as people in our late teens away from home for the first time. Uh, We could have ignored them and just gone racing up the mountain or down the mountain again and put our lives and other people's lives in danger. Or we could have obsessed about them to the point that we were paralyzed by fear and pulled the car over and just waited, not sure what we should do, because we were scared by the signs. Both reactions, of course, would have been wrong. The signs were there to warn us, to help us on our way. We weren't supposed to ignore them, nor were we supposed to obsess over them. However, The great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that the warning sign here in Hebrews chapter 6, he said that he could think of no other passage in Scripture that the devil used to distress and trouble God's people more. Some of you are distressed by this text. You're troubled by this text. You have tender consciences. You have sometimes doubted the promises of God. There have been seasons in your life where you haven't just doubted or been apathetic, but you have actively walked away from Jesus. And you have put distance between yourself and the church. And you may be here this morning barely hanging on. And after you hear this passage, you might wonder, is there still hope for me? Have I I already crossed the point of no return? Is it even worth being here if it's too late for me to repent? There are others of us, however, that I think are probably in danger of speeding past this warning sign, of ignoring it of having a theological rationale and justification for why it doesn't apply to me. Both attitudes are wrong. Our preacher is dealing with a specific problem in the early church. You've heard me say since we began in Hebrews that the main issue is that there is this group converted out of Judaism, became Christians, And now is undergoing some sort of problem, whether that's persecution from the outside. Something is happening to the church that is causing them to reconsider their profession of faith in Christ. And they are in danger of turning back toward Judaism. And over and over in this book, our preacher has shown them why Jesus is better. And now he is warning them of the dire consequences of going back, of renouncing Christ, of returning to the synagogue. If someone professes faith in Christ, 
and then returns to Judaism. That's the specific issue in view in this passage. They will come under the covenant curses which fall on lawbreakers apart from the mediation of Jesus Christ. To fall away from Jesus Christ is to demand that God judge us by our obedience to his law. To fall away from Jesus Christ, to return to Judaism, is in effect crucifying Jesus again. Going back to the cross and seeing it as something different, not as a savior, the Lamb of God given for the sins of the world, but as a failed Messiah, a blasphemer who deserves to die a a terrible death. Those who do that, our preacher says, cannot be restored to repentance. For some of you, that is interesting information, but you have wrestled with this passage for other reasons. You've applied it to yourself, or you've heard other people preach on this passage, and you wonder, is it possible for a true Christian to lose their salvation? How could these Christians lose their salvation? Different folks have wrestled through that question in different ways throughout history. Our Arminian friends say, yes, absolutely, it is possible for you to lose your salvation. You can be saved, you can lose your salvation, and then you can be born again again. You just have to walk the aisle, you have to say the prayer. And that can be a cycle that you go through over and over and over again. And this is partly why we Calvinists joke that While we have the tulip, our Arminian friends have the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. That's a good Calvinist joke for you. You're not going to be surprised that I think the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that salvation belongs to God. And as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1, what he begins, he will complete in you. Or as Jesus puts it in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or as he says in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, those he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. But Eric chapter 6 Of Hebrews, verse 4, it it sounds like these people were part of the church. They were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. What does that mean? We're not exactly sure what those phrases mean, to be honest. 
Some scholars look at that and hear echoes of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land where they tasted the heavenly gift, the manna that was given to them on the way. Other scholars say, no, this is a description of what an early church worship service would look like because by around the second century, this word for enlightened was was essentially analogous to baptism. And then you move on to tasting the heavenly gift, and that sounds like it could refer to communion and sharing the Holy Spirit. That might be witnessing the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit in the early church and tasting the goodness of the Word of God. Well, that might mean sitting under the preaching of the Word. We don't really know what those phrases mean. But whatever those phrases mean, it certainly does sound like they describe believers, doesn't it? Those who had had some sort of conversion experience, who became part of the visible church. And so it presses in on us. How can someone like that fall away? I want you to notice something. I want you to see how the preacher's language shifts in chapter 6, verse 4. Prior to chapter 6, verse 4, our preacher speaks in the second person. He talks about you and the first person plural, we, us. So chapter 5, verse 11, about this we have much to say. Verse 12, by this time you ought to be teachers. Chapter 6, verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. But then in chapter 6, verse 4, he switches his language to the third person plural. He starts speaking about those and them. Friends, what I want you to see is he isn't accusing anyone in the congregation of having taken this step. Instead, he's putting before them a big warning sign, maybe referring to people who had left the church, who had returned to Judaism. Maybe he's just saying this is the natural, logical outcome. This is what will happen if you choose to make this step. But in this way, he is using the kind of language that we find elsewhere in Scripture, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Or in the very small New Testament book of Jude, Jude verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, 1 John chapter 2, Jude 4. This all describes a group of people who are always part of, of the covenant community. Esau and Ishmael were circumcised. 
It was a sign that they belonged to God, a sign that they were heirs of the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham. But they didn't have faith. They spurned the sign, they rejected Abraham's God, and they lost the blessings that were held out to them. Judas, he walked with Jesus for three years. He saw the powers of the age to come up close and personal. But he rejected Jesus, and he dies as the son of perdition. Jesus even tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that on the last day there will be people who prophesied. People who cast out demons. People who did many mighty works in his name only to hear that terrible judgment, depart from me for I never knew you. Friends, it is not possible for you to lose your salvation. But it is possible for you to be part of the visible church and never actually be saved. The point of all these texts is to remind us that not everyone who is part of the church is actually united to Christ by faith. There will be people in your life who walk away from Jesus. There will be people in this church who walk away from Jesus. Whether that's for a season, as many of us have experienced, to come back as prodigals, to, to receive the welcome of our Father, or whether it's for a lifetime, we won't know. But unless you have faith in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, nothing else matters. Not the things that you have done for Jesus, not the things that you have witnessed in your Christian life, not the emotions that you have felt, not the rituals that you have undergone, not even the doctrines that you once professed were true. What matters is faith in Christ alone. Folks, we need to feel the weight of this warning. We dare not speed past it. But we also dare not sit and obsess over it. Because our author doesn't. Our preacher keeps going. He doesn't leave us with the warning ringing in our ears. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What gives them such hope? I mean, if this church is on the verge, if there are people that are in danger of spurning Christ and of falling away, why, after such a stern warning, does he leave his congregation with hope? Well, he says it. He says, I've seen you. I've seen you in action. I've seen your love. I've seen your service for one another and for God. And what I hope that this communicates to you, friends, is that our life is not measured by one moment. A snapshot of our life that might capture us at a moment where we are turned away from Jesus. 
a moment where we are caught up in the sins that so easily entangle us, a moment where we are consumed with doubt or apathy, that doesn't define you. Instead, a faithful life is measured as a whole life. The challenges as well as the joys, the places of failure as well as the places of victory, and all of it submitted to Jesus, trusting in him alone for salvation. Are you struggling for assurance this morning? Are you struggling in your faith? Do you really wonder if you really believe this, if God is really for you, if you really belong to Jesus? I want to suggest several things to you. The first is repent. So many problems with our assurance come because we are trying to hold on to Jesus and the sins that we love. We want to carve out a big space for Jesus in our life. As long as we can have our little corner that we control, that belongs to us. We repent of our sins as a congregation every Sunday. But I'm afraid that for some of us, that's the only time of the week you're actually honest with God. Take another step. And make repentance a daily habit. Or as David Cassidy, our former pastor, is fond of saying, prepent. Start with repentance. Start your day knowing that you're going to sin, but with confidence that you have a faithful Savior. If you're struggling with assurance, you need to repent. The second thing that you need to do is don't neglect the fellowship of the church. I was talking with our elders this weekend about some of the changes that I've noticed even here at Redeemer kind of post-COVID. I said there always used to be that group that was here every single Sunday and then there was a wider group of people that were here every couple weeks, two weeks out of the month. And then there was that group that was almost never here. But if I saw them at HEB, they'd introduce me as their pastor. (laughs) Those groups have grown. And the people that are here every week, they're not here as much anymore. And the people that used to be here twice a month, now if they make it to church once a month, they're feeling okay. Friends, don't neglect the fellowship of the church. You've heard me tell this story before of Martin Luther who went to go visit a man who hadn't been at church recently and he knocks on the door and the man opens the door and his face falls seeing his pastor and he invites Luther into his home and he immediately begins kind of rattling off a number of excuses for why he hasn't been to church but Luther doesn't say anything at all. He just sits by the fire and he takes the tongs and he grabs a coal and he puts it on the floor next to the fire between the man and him and just silently watches until it loses its glow, loses its heat, until he can pick it up with his bare hands. And the man looked at Luther and said, I'll be at church on Sunday. (laughs) You need the fellowship of the saints to survive. It's hell out there. You need the fellowship of the saints to survive. Not just to thrive, 
but to survive. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. But it's when we are alone that our doubts, our apathy, our despair begins to grow. Repent. Don't neglect the fellowship of the church. And third, and pardon me for being so blunt, grow up. That's what the preacher wants us to hear. This whole warning is grounded in our preacher's frustration with an immature church. They should be mature. They should be teachers. But he says, you guys are kids. You're dull of hearing. Maturity, of course, doesn't prevent hardship, does it? Maturity doesn't prevent temptations and trials coming into your life. Maturity doesn't keep you even from doubt, but it does give us the tools that we need to walk faithfully with God through those ordeals. So let me ask you, are you taking steps today to grow in your Christian faith? If you're not, you are in danger. Do you think of your Christian faith like those old time machines where you clock in, clock out of work? Chuck. I've done my duty. I've, I've participated in my act of religious obligation this week. Now leave me alone so I can go do my other things. Friends, you're in danger. The warning of Hebrews chapter 6 is like those signs on that mountain road. We can't ignore them. We also can't obsess about them. If we ignore them, we put ourselves in danger. If we obsess about them, we become fixated on ourselves. And it's never good to be fixated on yourself. Because you're never going to find any hope by peering into your own heart. Instead, you need to lift up your eyes to see Jesus. You need to lift up your head and your voice in worship. Because ultimately, it is not our faithfulness that saves us. Jesus saves us. And Jesus will never forsake us. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear this warning. And faith and courage to follow you wherever you lead. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.